Hello and welcome to uh, the Election Daily Podcast. Today we're taking you across the pond back to the UK where I am joined by Glenn O'Hara who's an Oxford academic at Oxford Brookes University. Uh, he specialises in modern history but also does a lot of commentary on politics. So the first question is what do you make of the current candidates of the uh, Conservative Party leadership? Oh god well how long have you got in a way? Um... I think what strikes me is that we're looking at, yeah, quite different personalities and quite different presentation, but we're not looking at a vast range of ideological dispute in many ways. I mean, I think these people are all under the shadow of what you could call kind of Brexit and Thatcherism. Uh, The only real ideological dispute I can see is that Rishi Sunak would probably more be leaning over towards a kind of fiscal conservatism or fiscal liberalism, which is that the budget would be tighter, taxes would be higher, uh, the budget would be closer to balance, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, these days, given the powers of the Bank of England, we're not looking at, you know, the 1970s or 1960s where governments could, could really pump things up. So even there, you know, what are we looking at? I suppose Tuggenhart might lead to a bigger set of forces and a more realistic defence posture. But I suppose my general view is this is a set of personalities who are, you know, different in engaging ways, aren't they? But they're not they're not exactly um, a vast spectrum in terms of their views. In terms of previous leadership elections, a lot of people have talked about how there's traditionally more of a front runner character. And though Rishi's kind of tried to take on that persona, there seems to be a lot of backlash to him as an individual. How do you see the election in comparison to previous ones? Well, you're right. There usually is the emergence, you know, uh, of someone who looks uh, head and shoulders above the rest. But remember, we don't have many um, instances to go on. You know, our statistical base is really low because modern conservative elections really only since um, 1997, uh, since since they had a, a membership election. But if we look at overall with ones that have been just confined to the MPs, which in my view is how it should run anyway. I suppose that the the front runner sometimes does win. I mean, Theresa May emerged very quickly as the front runner. David Cameron's, you know, conference speech kind of blew David Davis out of the water in one of the previous contests in in 2010. Very quickly was obviously going to win. And, you know, these days we also have a good opinion polling of the members, which if we look at the Labour Party membership, uh, surveys of, for instance, YouGov are really very accurate. Um, and so Sunak, I think Opinion have got a poll out, probably is just ahead of the others. So I guess although, yes, the front runner can be uh, destroyed, it really depends, you know, because the front runners ahead of Thatcher in 75 didn't win because she'd moved first. But Sajid Javid's already gone, the first, the first mover in this race, the first resigner, just by what was it, 15 minutes or something. Mm. So th- these the, these uh, factors that can be really particular. And I, I don't honestly think that there is a lot of a, uh, a sort of history to go on here because we haven't got a lot of examples. It's a bit like Nate Silver always says about presidential elections. Well, modern presidential elections is just since the late 40s. It's not a vast evidence base. You, you talked slightly earlier about how um, there's not much difference between the ideology and certainly also linking that with the the leader. 
uh, being Rishi Sunak and then everyone else kind of playing catch up. There's a really interesting dynamic between who's the stop Rishi candidate. And so far it's between Penny, uh, Penny Mordon and Liz Truss. How do you see the kind of tactical MPs who are transferring from other endorsements to those two? How will that play out? Well, um, the, the the answer to this is the same as the answer to the one before, which is I don't know. And anyone telling mm. you they know is a bit of a charlatan, which is, you know, why we distrust kind of um, Nostradamus style, quote unquote, experts. By the way, just saying that the front runner doesn't always lose doesn't mean I think that Sunak will win. I think it could be very, uh, very tight. And one thing that's good about this race is it might actually depend because it could be quite tight on performance during the race, which is, a, which is a plus, despite I think that members of political parties have seized a constitutional role, which doesn't really belong to them. I think at least, at least you know, being able to give a speech and being able to have some ideas is going to matter, which is, which is great. I think the way it's going to play is it does seem like, strangely, more really hard line Brexiteers seem to be coalescing behind trust, but others, probably what you'd say was the kind of broad bulk of the of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, might come behind Morden. And there's a what? How many votes are there between them now? Seven or eight votes between the two. Sorry, we should iterate publicly declared because there does seem to be quite a difference between uh, what's publicly declared and what's privately declared. Yeah, that's right, and. You're, you're right to say that to me, but um, I think they're pretty close together. And mm -hmm. the, the addition of those two blocks to them keeps them pretty close together. However, I think the real hardcore of the ERG that will get behind Truss will flake apart because um, she's was a Remainer and she is not always to everyone's kind of personal like or dislike. And I don't know why uh, these personal relations seem to be important in this in this race more than some others. Partly, I suppose, because the ideas between them aren't that different. So um, I think if I were to guess, I think Penny Mordaunt might just make it. But that's like a 60-40 or 55-45 call to take on Sunak in the in the members' ballot. So let's let's say someone like Rishi Sunak or Penny Mordaunt or Liz Trust does win, because those are the three main frontrunners. What does the new prime minister have to do to really reinvigorate the party and, and, and really take a challenge back to Labour in Poland? Right, well, I guess you won't be surprised to hear me say as a kind of economist um, in one of my degrees that um, all of the things they're talking about kind of pale against the challenge of energy prices and gas prices. So we're looking at some of these gas markets for the coming winter in 2023 are just out of control. So if you're looking at people paying three and a half, four thousand pounds for their energy bill, uh, a lot of the stuff that we talk about isn't going to matter. They're just going to vote Labour or Lib Dem or Green or SNP or whatever. Um, although the Conservatives can claw back socially conservative voters usually using wedge issues or anti-woke issues, so-called. As we've seen recently in Australia, that is just not enough to get back to a majority position. So the first thing I'm going to say is, well, they need to do something to secure an end to the war in Ukraine but that's easier easier said than done and, and the UK isn't a, a massive player in that story although perhaps it was in in January and February um what they've got to do is is number one the task of a prime minister is to look like you know what you're doing 
Um, and Sunak, I think, has an advantage there, which is that he's actually quite well known. And what we're looking at here when we look at public opinion polls uh, of, of popularity of these people is just who's heard of them. Because remember, the vast bulk of voters don't pay any attention to active Westminster politics, quite rightly, um, because uh, it, there's no point in many ways. And it's only for professionals like me that, that look at it in detail. So the first is just to just to give an impression that you're a leader, which is, you know, is people deprecate speeching and words and, and what people say, but it's, it is really still important. Luckily for the Tories, I think that um, Sunak has got his own style. Perhaps he's a bit brittle, perhaps he's a bit, um, he feels a bit kind of artificial, but it's certainly something that his, his ratings were good. They plunged over his various personal financial affairs and now they're slightly coming back again. So he's not unpopular. A little bit like his matchup with Starmer would be a little bit like for like, wouldn't it? You imagine these kind of big Lego figures fighting each other. These slightly sort of, uh, slightly sort of not particularly, slightly bloodless uh, figures fighting each other. Mordaunt, it seems to me, is a bit of a better, a more fluent communicator. But it's often hard to know, although you quite like what, the way she's saying it, what on earth she is talking about. <laughs> And, and she seems to be able to shift um, in a very easy way between different groups of voters. Now, of course, Boris Johnson had that as well. And you couldn't pin him down because he would just make a joke and, and move off the topic. So she seems to be quite a skilled communicator. To, to me, and looking at some of the evidence as well of what voters think, I think Liz Truss would be, from this point of view, quite an error for them. Because she just seems to fall flat and come across quite badly uh with voters some of them don't like despite i'm sure she thinks that this is a kind of thatcherite tone and you know quote unquote red wall voters will like it she her her very strong and flavorful views about things like the war in ukraine come across as quite extreme to lots of voters and her tone often they don't like as well which of course is sometimes a gendered issues and plenty of voters have all sorts of um you know, views that might not be all that palatable when we when we hear them. But so I think they've got two good, quite good communicators in the last three and one not such a good communicator. And communication is going to be key as we struggle through this next 18 months. Well, it's interesting because you very often kind of bring up how a lot of these uh, candidates are more Thatcherites leaning economically. And with a lot of the Conservative aims to try to hold the seats that they gained in 2019, is there any real chance that a more Thatcherite persona and political um, philosophy will actually appeal to the Red Wall, who obviously are extremely anti-Thatcher in nature? Well, it all depends. What, it all depends, doesn't it? This is another classic academic's answer. It depends what you mean by Thatcherism. I mean, I think you can appeal in um, all these things are cliches, aren't they? But kind of left behind towns by improving infrastructure, because what we're looking at is towns that have boarded up high streets, don't have a library, don't have some public toilets, all these things which makes people feel that their physical infrastructure is shabby, partly because it is. And you don't need to spend a huge amount, as the Johnson government has already shown, sprucing up some of these places and inc increasing sense of, of civic uh, pride and civic solidity. So getting closer to balancing the budget Number one doesn't mean actually balancing the budget because the debt is the debt of uh, the deficit is so high for completely understandable reasons, and it possibly could even be a bit higher. 
So you're not talking about taking a mad axe to the welfare state, nor are you talking about things being nearly as bad as they were in you know, 1980, 1981 too, when I was first conscious of, of public affairs, when the government was basically shoving up interest rates way over 20% and causing really a, a, a great recession and causing unemployment to, to zoom up past 3 million. So you're not doing these things just by saying, I'm gonna get closer to balancing the budget. You're not saying you're going to get into a mad confrontation with these voters. And remember that it does allow you a, a quite a good dividing line with Labour, a dividing line that's often worked with Labour, which is to say to everything Labour says, well, where's the money coming from? If you are in this stance, if you're in a kind of modern or trust stance, it's harder because you're talking about spending yourself all the time. And that and that does slightly blunt your attack. You know, we can talk in real um, crude terms about uh, socially conservative old voters in England towns, but really, they just want the economy to recover and, and their bus service to be a bit better. Um, and therefore, what we could call a Thatcherite approach could, if it doesn't attack those things, it can still it can still work because it appeals to the idea of household budget as national budget. Hmm. Well, also talking about the Red Wall, that this isn't just like a, a phenomenon to that area. There seems to be a widespread feeling that the parties that they people traditionally supported, whether it's in Scotland, where it was Labour, in the South now with the Tories. Why now is there a real spread of, we don't feel like these parties are still representing us? You mean any of the parties or the Conservatives? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, well, you know, because there's, uh, since 2015, there has been a real wave of people saying the party doesn't reflect us now, whether it's the Tories in the South or Labour in the North. Midlands and Scotland? Well, the first thing to say is that de-alignment, which we call it in the jargon, has got a long, long history. And it goes back into the, you know, the early 1960s and the liberal revival with suburban conservatives thinking, well, I feel a bit more liberal, feel a bit more pro-European than this kind of antediluvian Edwardian party. So this is not a new thing. And the SDP Liberal Alliance nearly destroyed the, the, the two-party duopoly in the early 80s and the mid-80s. So this is something that's, number one, it, it goes on in developed societies a huge amount, and it's only first past the post that's stopping it, you know, disintegrating parties and, uh, you know, Change UK and the Lib Dems and the Reform Party in 2019 all winning a huge load of seats, right? And a load more uh, MP defections. So... We're going to see this anyway for lots of reasons which uh, we all know about in terms of not watching political news, not being attached to your family's vote, you know, um, feeling uh, far away from the way politicians talk and all of these things that have, have been consistent since the 60s. I think that the, the immediate crisis is partly about the Brexit coalition for the Conservatives, which is in some ways an unnatural coalition of upscale voters who live in you know, Runnymede or you know, Egham, and loads of voters who live in Bury or Bolton. So, because remember, although we characterise Brexit as the phenomenon of uh, red wall left behind voters, which I've already said is a, is a horrendous cliche, it's actually a phenomenon that could not be won without liberal leavers in cities, without very, very rich voters in you know, Northern Surrey, which is a huge uh, leave area, although income looks fantastic. 
So that coalition is very, very hard to pull together. And in some ways, you could say that only Boris Johnson, with his kind of strange box of magicians skills in 2019, and also the fear of uh, a Corbyn-led Labour government, really glues them together. So if you take these things away, take Brexit away, securing the form of that, you take Johnson away, you know, his reputation is trashed, you take Corbynism away, you know, liberal-leaning voters can vote for nice Mr Starmer and, and nice Mr Davey. What is left? So, of course, the Conservative coalition splinters. If you then put 11% on inflation on top of it, you know, I, I honestly don't think that we're looking at a huge set of mysteries, right? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, and in regard to, obviously, Labour in 2015 in Scotland and in 19 in, in the North, is, is there also a rich history of why these kind of voters decided you know, Labour is no longer working for me in the same way as the Conservatives kind of are as well. Well, yeah, and there's people who are far more expert than I am um, who, who can tell you about it. But I mean, Labour's values shift progressively away, or at least the image of their values shift progressively away and their voters shift progressively away. And we see this even in 2017 when they do relatively well towards cities and big cities. And the ideas seem to become attached to them that they are uh, hyper socially liberal, they are in favour of the young uh, and of uh, immigration and of uh, various socially liberal ideas that are not unwelcome among these voters. Because remember, again, we're trying to get away from the caricature of these voters, but at least are surprising or uncomfortable for many of them, or that they don't like how fast they are coming or how much they are being imposed, right? It's not about necessarily the issue itself. It may be about how it's being, it is coming in on them. On top of, on top of, remember, a discourse that's been there since the 19th century or the, 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 the 1920s when Labour became the main left party, is that Labour can't spend your money wisely. Labour is uh, incontinent with the public sector purse. If you add these things together, I think they're very, very powerful. I think that there's a psychological element as well, which I think is twofold, which I increasingly think of below the level of formal politics, you know, almost at brainstem level, almost at kind of, um, you know, Pavlovian uh, level, which is that Labour seems like a load of public sector workers, seems like a load of social workers and teachers talking down to you. This is one of the problems Keir Starmer has, although voters are relatively... Uh, warming to him and they don't mind him one of the problems is he seems like what did I, I think the phrase I used at one point he seems like a disappointed headmaster and Labour's image as the the party of the public sector professional is a problem when those people seem to talk down to you and I think that there's also a problem in that Labour's um, Labour appears to be in lots of these voters minds the party of newness and novelty so every time you're, you know, if you're a 60 year old voter who or you're like my mum, who I, you know, on the, on the phone, I have to show her how to use the latest app. Right. You don't like your kids telling you how to use all this stuff. Well, a bit like that. You don't want Labour telling you what's good and bad. Remember that advert in 2017 saying Labour's the only party that can unlock the capacity of BME voters. I mean, this stuff's just you couldn't even make it up. Right. Uh, and this kind of condescension and patronising view 
I think gets glued to a view that Labour's just ignored voters. So if you listen to Hartlepool voters, you know, just a just a year or two ago, they all just felt like Labour hasn't, you know, there's been a Labour MP for decades and we've got nowhere. So let's try something different. So for all these reasons, kind of psychological, psychosocial, cultural, generational, Labour feels, doesn't think, but it feels a long way away from a lot of voters. Well, it's interesting because there's lots of debates within Labour about the type of leaders, ideologically or even personality based. And we've seen a lot of these debates happening over the last 10 years with the rise of Corbyn and then the fall of Corbyn. Uh, and now Starmer, who a lot of people on the left feel like has betrayed them from what he said in the leadership election. You know, let's say hypothetically the Tories start to rebound with a new leader, a fresh face or something like that. Is Starmer in a position where he can really continue his momentum, where people are starting to warm to him and has these big leads? Um, possibly, <laughs> I think is the next Weasley answer. Uh, and again, it, it, it's uncertain. I'm uncertain because it depends on lots of things. Number one, it depends on how big the, the bounce is. There will be a bounce in the autumn. New leader, fresh face, new impetus. Divisions will be relegated for a little while. Although, of course, those divisions might be still quite evident if, if Sunak wins because the, the Johnsonites will be out to get him. Um, not unjustifiably in some ways. Um, so it depends on the size of that bounce. And it depends on, I think, something which we detect in Starmer at the moment, which is his kind of self-confidence and his confidence in what he's saying. At the moment, he seems quite confident, but he is someone who can retreat into his comfort zone and seem quite robotic, some, something like May-like, when he uh, feels unsure of himself. And when he feels unsure of himself is when he's being faced with you know, very, very... Uh, visceral populism and you would have thought a truss or a mordant would be able to bash him over the head in that way however i think that you know you can have too much excitement and voters see in him quite rightly a dutiful public servant who yeah maybe he's a bit stiff maybe he's a bit boring uh maybe he's uh, a bit loyally but that's what you get and i think you know to thine own self be true he is himself and in this era of uh, for good or ill authenticity politics I think that comes across okay if you've had the excitement of you know four prime ministers in how many years is it six seven years yeah, maybe a bit of like yeah maybe a bit of stillness is is something that voters will like well it's interesting because you bring up that you know there's so many prime ministers it's almost somewhat comparable to the 1950s going into the 60s where there were, you know, a multitude of conservative leaders going in and out from 1951 to 64. And then also you have Wilson coming in with Labour and really rejuvenating it and bringing in, you know, 61, 66, a greater majority. Can Starmer be a figure like that, do you think? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Starmer, when asked for his favourite leader, chose Harold Wilson. And of course, you, you've got to choose Harold Wilson in a way because... I think he was asked not to choose Attlee. Attlee's a boring choice, obvious choice. You can't say Blair. <laughs> um, so you've got Wilson, uh, which is not a bad choice. And I think what Starmer means to communicate by that, which is that, is, is that he wants to hold the Labour Party together and he wants to hold the country together. Uh, because Wilson increasingly became a kind of uh, a national unifier. Now, he became a national unifier in part because 
far left and far right absolutely hated his guts. And in the end, lots of his colleagues really hated him as well because he would tack and turn and tack and turn and manoeuvre. But the reason he did that was to try to get to a position where the country's economy would improve, partly because it would be in the EEC. It would remain in the EEC. And in that, he was successful. Plenty of things he wasn't successful. He didn't get trade union reform. His, you know, the, his emphasis on science and technology was a bit before its time. But equally, he seems, uh, as people will know from things lots of us uh, have written, his stock has risen and risen. And Starmer saying, you know, Wilson was a good thing is, is interesting because for many, many years, you couldn't mention Had Wilson. It was just like the words Tony Blair. It was like a verboten term because he was seen as a kind of ultimate betrayer of left Labour. But it's difficult to be that betrayer of left Labour when you're such a... Um, a redistributor and of course pensions for instance went up under Wilson quite strongly in, in, this, in the late 60s. Can Starmer do that? Well yes in that the Conservative Party could easily as we see today could easily fall into an internecine civil war. If they lose 70 or 80 seats and remember they're facing many enemies on many fronts you could easily imagine uh, a kind of consensual Starmer government that if it can govern with the Lib Dems and some of the Northern Ireland MPs, the Green MP implied, i.e. if it doesn't need the SNP, it could look pretty stable. And indeed, he, he might offer a confidence and supply agreement uh, to the Lib Dems, which they would exert a price for, but they, they, they might go for. They wouldn't, I, I very much doubt there would be a formal coalition, but it could look pretty stable. And I'd pretty much wager that Starmer would look better as prime minister than he would as leader of the opposition, because he, he works hard, he's very ordered, he, he gets on very well with other leaders. He seems uh, quite consensual, apart from unless you're on the far left, that is, in the Labour Party. So it could be that things look more stable than voters feared when they thought of, you know, coalition of chaos. And it could be that he's a good CEO. So I think my answer is it's possible. But remember that the challenges coming up for, for UK governance are just so daunting that I think probably the odds would be on, on no, because a minority Labour government could simply be overwhelmed, like, you know, 1930-31. Well, talking about the Lib Dems, because obviously they could play, you know, a major part in, in the next government, whether it be confidence or supply, which they did lay out their, their um, red lines for, which would be a PR without any uh, formal co- uh, referendum. So I was going to say coalition, I meant referendum. Um, what part to play do, do they really have when since 2015 they've only gone net up one seat, uh, three seats, sorry, in a general election? And really, Ed Davey isn't really striking the imagination of the population outside of when there's a big by-election coming up. Well, I think they, they, I think they do have to play a role if there's going to be a non-conservative government, because I don't think Labour can get near... Uh, working majority of 322, albeit it's possible, but I would be very surprised. Remember also, we've got voter ID, we've got um, uh, boundary reform. So the Tories probably start off with a majority over 100. And that's very, very difficult to get over to your own majority. And remember, Labour would be easily a majority uh, position without Scotland. So although they can win a, a few seats in Scotland, and I would probably wager that they will, it's not going to be many more than the eight I think they won in in 2017, which is a big surprise, and they did really well. So the Lib Dems would definitely have a role to play. They also fulfil the role of, um, I think, voters who 
think of themselves as socially liberal, who will be voting Lib Dem, not because they're really impressed with, you know, the Lib Dem shadow cabinet, because they could probably name one of them, if that, maybe two. But, but they would be voting for them because they reject the conservative social, economic, political values. So increasingly, you look at these seats, you look at Guildford, for instance, although, you know, boundary reform is going to hurt the Lib Dems because it's going to take away the, the, the relationship between campaigners and the seat. But even so, if you look at Guildford, if you look at Esher uh, and Walton, if you look at, you know, South Cambridgeshire or South Oxfordshire in council elections, these, pl these places are changing really, really, really fast because they're becoming full of young graduates because you can't afford to live in the, in the city and you certainly can't afford to have a child or maybe buy a little house or a masonette or something in the city. So they are all, I think, without exception, going to vote anti-conservative. Who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote Lib Dem. That doesn't require the Lib Dems to be you know, startlingly amazing, but it certainly uh, opens up a path to 20 to 20 to 25 to 30 seats if they're lucky. You know, remember, though, that, you know, I'm very old and I have a long memory of Lib Dem bubbles that burst. Right. And we could go back to even before my birth, when everything was in black and white, to 1972-74, to the Liberal surge that only brings 14 only. Still good, but only brings 14 seats. So it can burst again. But I would wager they will do pretty well. Remember that, you know, I heard from a huge number of Lib Dem activists in 2019 saying our vote is being massacred by Labour, by Jeremy Corbyn, because middle class people just won't vote for us in, in our targets. So you take that away again, the fear of, of, of left Labour, um, and you, you really help the Lib Dems. So I think they do play a role. What they will demand for an unofficial understanding, not a confidence and supply, will be below, I suppose, a PR referendum or an AV alternative vote referendum. And it'll probably be some concessions on, on social and economic policy, which can easily be made. On the Lib Dems, a lot of people kind of view, and this isn't just, you know, outsiders, this is people that I know within the Liberal Democrats, that under Davy, there's no real sense of identity within the party. Mm. Um, you know, during the 2000s, they kind of carved identity as, as the anti-Iraq pro-education party. What identity do they now need? Because after they've just come off of with a pro-European party, it's not going to really cut it anymore, is it? Well, I'm not sure about that, because Labour's rejection of the single market and the customs union does open them a space. I mean, it's very complicated. And, you know, try and use the word single market and most voters' eyes kind of glaze over if they don't even just fall asleep. Even my eyes slightly glaze over. And I'm supposed to know all about it. But they can be the pro-European party and they can make a virtue, I think, of liberalism. Because I think that the, the problem they've had for a long, long time, as you rightly point out, is that they were the left party that were the left alternative to New Labour under uh, later Ashdown and, and under Kennedy, which was a great position to be in, partly because that's where it's, a lot of its target voters were, especially over at Iraq, which you mentioned. But I think getting back to that is almost impossible behind what's happened, behind kind of being the Remain party of Swinson and being in the coalition under Clegg, I think they now need to be a Liberal Party like Grumman's Liberal Party in the early 60s. And that's why I emphasise the liberalism of those voters who they can they can get it and in the places they can get. So I think, yes, they don't have much identity, but I think they just need again to be themselves. What do they believe in, which is a, a, a more liberal Britain, which is in the single market, is in a kind of Norway position, 
doesn't talk any of this uh, woke coach culture war stuff that the Tories talk, um, but probably isn't as isn't as uh, bound up with these uh, issues that Labour's got with fiscal probity, with budgetary probity. Doesn't have to come out and say, "Oh, we're always going to balance balance the budget." You know, there's that phrase, you know, only Nixon can go to China. And strangely, because they're a niche player and they're, they're a party that uh, has a doesn't have this image of budgetary incontinence, they, I think, can say, well, we can spend on public services. Remember, they never actually have to do it by leading a government. So I think I would just really emphasise, be liberal. Because remember, all you need to say is, if we join the single market, we'll have loads more money to spend. And which has the virtue, I think, ironically, of being true, that that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be true. It simply has to sound true. I sound rather Machiavellian there. Gosh. Yeah. Well, talking about the final party I want to talk about, which is the SNP, mm-hmm. they've got this really tight grip on Scotland at the moment. Um, and there's lots to be said about the government. There's lots of criticism about the SNP government and what they really bring uh, to Westminster as well. What do you see as kind of the way for them to end up losing support and what do they have to do to avoid that? Well, the first thing to say is they're going to go forward um, in some seats anyway. You know, I I wouldn't want to be defending those Tory seats in Scotland. Not that there's all that many of them. So they've got low hanging fruit, got low hanging fruit to win seats. So in some ways they're going to go forward amazingly after what is it now, 15 years in power at Holyrood in Edinburgh. Yeah. On the other hand, they are probably, if Labour's, if Labour get, is getting to these poll schools in the UK and in Scotland, sorry, in, in Great Britain and in Scotland, they're going to win seats off the SNP anyway. So I think that their aim is to get to a wash or just to lose a few seats net. Remember, these Scottish seats are really small. Uh, they are uh, often four-way battles and therefore they can be eccentric. There's a kind of spin the tombola feel to some of these seats and they could easily lose them. In 2017, they came really close to a seats meltdown uh, because there are lots of their majorities were, were very small. So lots of uh, seats can go on uh, a small swing. What they need to do is not seem too extreme about that second referendum issue. The worst possible thing that can happen to them is if the Supreme Court in London allows them to have an illegal refer- a legal referendum that's an advisory referendum that Westminster hasn't allowed to say that that uh, organising your own referendum is okay because unionists will just boycott it it will mean nothing it will be a nullity and they will look ridiculous or I suppose that I suppose that's not quite the worst thing the worst thing that can happen to them is is if they organise an illegal referendum like Mm. in Spain right and they end up getting surcharged they end up getting getting fined and in in a legal imbroglio so they need to seem like um, Sturgeon's public image, which is competent, which is a little bit left of centre, more competent than anybody else, and someone you can respect. In, she speaks in very uh, clipped and authoritative manner, and she's a good leader. I mean, losing her would also be a disaster, but that's why unionists just stall, because they know that the longer they can stall a Scottish independence referendum into the medium term, the more likely that Sturgeon won't lead it, the, the Yes campaign, the Leave campaign. Um, and she's one of the most respected political leaders in, in Northern Europe. So I, if in the unlikely event I was an SNP campaigner, I would just put Nicola Sturgeon front and centre and I would just pose as 
you know, Mrs. Respectable, uh, you know, respectable leader, respectable government, someone who knows what they're doing and is slightly to the left of uh, of the, the government in, in the potential alternative Labour Lib Dem government in Scotland or the government in Westminster. Thank you very much, Glenn, for your time. That was a fantastic interview. I hope you will enjoy that at home. If you're new, you can follow us on social media at election underscore daily on Twitter, and you can follow me personally at Aaron underscore G Smith. Thank you all for your time, and I hope you enjoyed it.